You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. Well, here we are again. Hopefully, everybody is having a great week. Uh, sorry I didn't put a podcast out on Monday. Uh, I'll be completely honest, I was out late on Sunday night. I didn't get back home until uh, fairly late, and uh, I didn't get around to uh, editing and launching a podcast because of fatherly and husband duties. So here we are today. We're going to be joined by Lindsey Thomas Jr. He is the Director of Communications for the Quality Deer Management Association. And uh, long story short, if you don't know anything about Quality Deer Management Association, well, Lindsay today is going to fill you in a little bit about that. But a majority of this podcast revolves around Southern hunting, especially in Georgia, where Lindsay is from. And uh, we're going to talk a about a little bit of everything strategy how it may may differ from other parts of the country we're going to talk about terrain features we're going to talk about how he approaches the season and uh a little bit of everything like i mentioned so uh, that's what today's podcast is about now i haven't done this in a while where i i kind of go through and uh, talk about all the ways you can save money just by listening to this podcast uh, through our sponsors, right? So uh, we have uh, five different um, offers through our sponsors, through Wasp, Ozonics, Deer Lab, Exodus Trail Cameras, and Lone Wolf Tree Stands. And I'm going to run through those really quick right now. Um, and uh, I really feel that you guys should probably place, an, if you're looking at getting some of this stuff before the rut, you should do it now because uh, 
Uh, as more and more people are procrastinators, everybody's going to order at the same time. And when you order, your name is put to the back of the list. So I really feel that uh, if you guys want to take advantage of these discounts, now is the time to do it. So if you want to save 20% off Wasp Broadheads, go to their website wasparchery.com and enter the discount code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers uh, when purchasing a your broadheads and you can save 20 percent off your order next is ozonics and i actually just had a guy uh message me through facebook on what the discount code was uh for for ozonics and that is nine fingers one seven uh and uh, you can save $75 off of all orders of $400 or greater. So uh, that's going to get you a really good discount. That's over 25% for the HR200. Uh, so again, nine fingers, one seven, and that is $75 off of all orders over $400 for Ozonics. Here's one that you definitely need to take uh, advantage of as far as this time of year to help you forecast deer movement, and that's go to deerlab.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. Uh, sign up for a free 30-day trial period. They don't take your credit card or any information from you. Basically, you just provide your uh, your name and email address, and you will get a free 30-day subscription to Deer Lab. And as always, Exodus Trail Cameras, uh, if you order today, you will save $20 off all orders, um, and that is nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. Again, uh, just another awesome trail camera. And then last but not least, Lone Wolf uh, so if you go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers, um, you enter in a little bit of information and they'll give you a discount code. And because I'm very impatient, I will give you that discount code right now. And that discount code is 9FC50. And that will allow you to save $50 off of all orders over $200. That's roughly 25%. When you, If you buy the Assault, uh, it's going to be somewhere between 20 and 25% savings. So uh, that's a really good discount. And then at the same time, uh, don't forget to uh, check out the other sponsors of this podcast, Gearhead, Ripcord, and Bighorn Outfitters, um, you know, I'm sure if you mentioned Nine Fingers sent you, they may give you a little bit of a price break. But uh, definitely something to keep in mind as the, as the really grind season starts, part of the grind, you know, it's coming very soon. And uh, it's one of those things that we're going to be preparing for, and you got to have the right gear. So uh, take advantage of those discounts. With all that said, let's get into today's podcast with Lindsey Thomas of the Quality Deer Management Association. All right, on the phone with me now, Mr. Lindsey Thomas. How are you doing today, Lindsey? I'm great, Dan. How are you doing? You know, I can't complain. It's hunting season uh, pretty much all over the United States, and I, I know that puts a smile on a lot of people's faces. But um, before we get into this podcast, I want to talk, talk today about, uh, you know, hunting down in Georgia where you live and... Uh, um, you know, we don't get a lot of people from the South on this podcast, and that's partially my fault because I know a lot of guys who listen to this podcast are from the South, and it's completely different. But before we get into that, why don't you touch base on uh, what you do for a living and whereabouts in Georgia you live? Okay. Um, first of all, 
I just wanted to, to throw a word of congratulations at you on a number of things. New baby. Um, I saw you hit a million downloads this yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, you got the Sportsman's Nation podcast ro- uh, network rolled out now. Uh, uh, pretty soon. Pretty soon. So yep. A ton of stuff going on. So congrats on all of that. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on here. I'm really excited to be on for the first time. Um, you know, we met at uh, the QDMA National Convention in New Orleans this summer, and uh, and I'm just excited to be a part of this. But I am, as you mentioned before, I, I work at QDMA. I'm the Director of Communications for QDMA. been here 14 years. Um, and as Director of Communications, I do uh, a handful of things, um, mainly the magazine, Quality Whitetails, um, I'm the editor of Quality White Tales. Um, I work on the QDMA website along with Brian Grossman, who's our communications manager. Um, and we both also share duties on social media and email communications coming out of QDMA, press releases, pretty much any the, inter, the entire interface of the QDMA nonprofit organization with the deer hunting world. That's what we handle in communications. Nice, nice. And uh, so are you just doing a lot of writing throughout your day, spreading the message of QDMA? Yeah, it's, um, you know, from being involved in all this stuff, Dan, from social media to putting together a podcast, you know, there's a lot of technical side to it, um, running the website, running social media. You, you, it's not truly the traditional, um, you know, outdoor magazine editor job like it used to be where you did more writing and true reporting, getting on the phone, talking to folks and interviewing. And um, so there's a lot more, I don't know, the technical side of it, uh, a lot more marketing strategy to it um, than it used to be, as you know. Um, But yeah, it is pretty much still outdoor journalism. And that's my background. I have a journalism major. uh, And um, and so I still thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Cool. Now, um, like I, like you mentioned, it was my first time going down. Uh, well, it was my first time being involved in a, a QDMA convention, and that's where we met. How often do you guys have, uh, I guess, not necessarily big national conventions like that, because I know that's annual, but on a, maybe a smaller scale, how often do people from the QDMA get together in any type of gathering? Well, yeah, you're right. The National Convention is a national event that happens once a year. But our branches, which that's our our name for our local uh, collections of members, other organizations call them chapters or whatever, and you know everybody's familiar with local chapters of the Turkey Federation or DU. Um, and we call our member groups, our volunteer groups, branches. And they have annual fundraising banquets. They have educational events, field days. They do a lot of different, you know, youth hunts, a whole bunch of different events in their local areas. Uh, Just banquets alone will have, you know, well over um, 120 banquets around the nation this year. Um, And many more events, once you count in uh, field days, food plot and habitat days, where, you know, they invite the communities to come out and learn about these things and bring in expert speakers. Youth hunts, where they're trying to get young folks in the woods or even you know, adult hunters who want to learn how to hunt. We're getting more and more into that through our uh, volunteer grassroots groups. Um, so there's stuff going on in, you know, in most of folks' communities uh, in every state you know, where there's whitetails. 
Um, and in some states, we have more branches than others. But, you know, I encourage your listeners, if they want to get involved in that sort of thing, to go to the website, qdma.com, and find their local branch, the nearest branch. Uh, because that stuff is going on, um, you know, year-round. Right, right. So, quick plug, say whatever you want to say about the QDMA, whether there's like an upcoming push for, uh, I don't know, a special project that you guys are working on, or if there's a push to uh, collect more members, the floor is yours to say anything you want about the QDMA. Okay, great. Well, QDMA is very simply, Dan, it's where deer hunters belong. Uh, We are the most uh, influential and respected deer nonprofit out there with a mission of ensuring the future of whitetail deer and whitetail hunting. Um, but we also want to see that, you know, the deer population, the deer resource is managed right, um, that it's sustainable and healthy, uh, and that we all have habitat and access uh, for the future. And we have just rolled out um, a brand new set of five-year goals. We've announced them in our magazine to our members, getting ready to announce those to the public as well. Um, we're kind of at a turning point, you might say. I mean, when we came about 30 years ago, it was mostly we were designed to address some serious illnesses with uh, deer hunting and mainly the deer populations around the country. They were seriously out of whack. You know, traditional deer management where most folks shot the first antlered buck that came along uh, and never shot a doe. Uh, we had, you know, as a, as a nation, we had gone, grown beyond the point where that was still an effective way to manage deer populations. Deer populations were way out of whack. Um, we needed to, as hunters, we needed to start taking some does, and it was time to start letting these populations uh, evolve toward a natural balance by letting some yearling bucks pass through and become older. Um, that it was time for that, and that was part of our mission in the early days was you know teaching hunters how to do this, encouraging them to uh, strive for this, and you know showing them the benefits of you know having the kind of exciting deer hunting you can have when you have some adult bucks in the population seeing more scrapes, seeing more rubs, you know, having effective rattling and grunting um, and calling techniques like that. So, you know, teaching hunters the benefits of of achieving QDM was part of our goal. Well, pretty much, you know, honestly, I think we can all say now, looking at trends in deer harvest over these last 30 years, and, you know, that, that quality deer management in some form or fashion is pretty much the mindset of of the average deer hunter out there not all of them but many of them uh, who are practicing at least some aspect of deer management and so we feel like you know in the time that we were achieving that uh, some other challenges appeared on the horizon whether it is diseases uh, whether it is population declines in some areas habitat declines declining hunter numbers declining access to places to hunt and so we see um, an evolving role for us in achieving our mission, and that's where these new five-year goals are coming out. I won't get into all of those, but it's in our magazine. It'll be on our website, letting folks know what are the specific things we hope to achieve. We have laid out some very measurable goals over the next five years, dealing with things like deer research, like venison donation, like hunter recruitment, like improving habitat on public lands and improving access to public hunting lands. A number of things where we've laid out some specific goals and we're going to be asking everyone to get behind us on these goals and help us achieve those. So that's the big thing going on right now. Perfect. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys, the listener, want to find out more information about QDMA, just go to QDMA.com. Is that where we want to send them? That's it. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this 
uh, podcast. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I have to ask because the name of this podcast is the Nine Finger Chronicles, and me and you actually have something in common because of that aspect. Do That's you, right. <laughs> we, we, we've got a total of 18 fingers among us on this uh, podcast. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so what I want you to do, if it's okay, I want you to share the story with the listeners about how you lost your finger. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's pretty short. Um, well, literally. Uh, yeah, I'm... <laughs> You know, we, we compared notes on this when we were at convention and we met, and uh, That's right. you know the the two nine finger brothers meeting up here. But um, <laughs> I'm not missing as much as you are. I'm missing, you know, basically the last joint on my left index finger, and that happened when I was about ten years old. I grew up on a farm in southeast Georgia. Uh, my dad raised tobacco, soybeans, corn primarily, um, and in the summertime when I was out of school, I helped in the tobacco fields. And, you know, working around machinery. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty dangerous at the time. You know, in the way tobacco was picked at the time, it was a fairly dangerous pursuit for a lot of people. You know, in farm communities like the one I grew up in, many times you see people missing fingers. Um, and so, anyway, was, was working, you know, got up, honestly got uh, up on some of the machinery. And, um, you know, long story short, got my hand caught in some of the machinery on, on the tobacco picker that we use. And that's how it happened. So, man, I tell you what, mine was, mine was really quick when it happened. It was just a boom like that. Was yours a quick detachment or was it more of a painful one? Yeah. Not to get too graphic here and, you know, for anybody who's sensitive, but it was not quick. It was more of a mash than a, yeah. than a cut. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't pretty. Um, but well, the good news is, I mean, as you know, I mean, I'm sure we'd agree. A lot of people think that th- that that's, I don't know, can be debil- debilitating, but you adapt and you come, you know, right. you learn how to, to deal with it. It doesn't really, you don't notice it. Other people notice it more than you do. I think, I mean, I, yep. I, um, use a keyboard just fine. I actually play guitar and, and really don't have any issues that, that, um, slows me down and I'm sure you'd probably agree on that. So that's right. And we can still hunt, which is the most important thing, right? That's right. Absolutely. So this is a kind of a good transition because down in Georgia, uh, when you were 10 years old and you're helping your dad on the farm, when, when did you start becoming involved in any type of hunting? Was that right away when you were young or was it something that you got into later on in life? No, it was already going on at that time. I mean, it's from the my dad um, was raised hunting by his uncle, whose name, by the way, was Lindsey Grace, and that's where the name comes from. He was my dad was named after his uncle, Lindsey Grace, um, and Lindsey Grace was that he did not have any children of his own, um, and he was a hunter, and he took my dad and mentored him and raised him hunting. And so uh, dad did the same to me. So, no, my, my brother Rands and I were raised hunting, um, and my sister Nell as well. Um, now, dad was taking me from the time I was, you know, old enough to ride on the, in the truck with him to even climb into a stand with him. Uh, and, you know, he would hunt uh, with the, some of the earliest lock-on stands, some he even built himself. And, uh, you know, I would just climb up in the, in the lock-on with him many times. So when we would squirrel hunt, we'd deer hunt, you know, we did dove hunt, did a little bit of it all. Right. So 
back then when you know you were young and hunting the only thing that I'm really familiar with about Southern hunting is there are a lot of um, community properties or hunting clubs, I guess is what people calls them. Um, Were you guys a member of a hunting club all the way back then? Or because you guys had farming property, did you have access outside of hunting clubs? Yeah, um, we didn't. Dad hunted a little bit on the farm. Um, but he also traveled. He there were some WMAs, uh, public land, mm-hmm. uh, state wildlife management areas there nearby that he hunted as well. Would go and camp on with friends and hunt. Um, and then later on, he began to you know he got involved in some what you would call hunting clubs, which were leased land, uh, yeah. leased from timber companies in other parts of the state. Because the farm, let me just explain, the farm is in, you know, the lower coastal plain of Georgia, which is the physiographic region, basically a coastal, you know, area. The soils there are very sandy because not too long ago this was the ocean floor. Um, and so um, you really have to get up into middle Georgia and some other areas um, to see better deer habitat. We have good deer and good deer hunting and, and enjoy the heck out of it. But in that lower coastal plain area, you don't grow deer the same size body wise, antler wise that you do in other parts of the state and certainly not in other parts of the country. So dad, you know, at times would, uh, join clubs and hunt in other areas of the state. So yeah, we, we kind of had a mix of it. We, we hunted public land, we hunted our own farm and we hunted, uh, in, in groups of other hunters on leased land in other parts of the state. Right. And that's one thing that, you know, being from Iowa, I'm not necessarily accustomed to a, because I don't lease land. All my land is either public ground that I hunt on or knock on door permission. Um, so has the, the quote unquote hunting club been a thing for a long time, or has that been something that has kind of grown in popularity throughout the years in the South? I think it goes way back, man. And it, and it, it goes along with the fact that in the South, um, over time, uh, when you go back 50, 60 years, you know, uh, the, the land ownership pattern was that much of the land outside of towns and, and cities was owned by either farmers or large timber companies. Uh, many timber companies owned their own land to grow their own timber and, and send that to their own plants for the market. Um, and over time, timber companies who were looking at, um, and, and my understanding is that that general uh, scenario there is was not or is not uh, known or common in the north, in the Midwest, and the Northeast. That that generally timber companies did not own, you know, the, the, the majority of the land like they did in the South. Well, these timber companies were looking for income. That's why they own the land. They're growing timber for their their businesses and profit, what else could they do to get profit from the land? And somewhere along the way, somebody said, let's lease out hunting rights to the land. And so that's where, and it goes way back, um, you know, uh, even prior to when my dad started hunting in the late 60s at the time, timber companies were leasing their lands to clubs, quote, clubs of hunters, which was just a name for groups of hunters that got together and were willing to sign the contract and pay the lease rate uh, for attractive land to hunt it. Um, and that became a way these timber companies would make additional profits off their land when they weren't harvesting the timber, was you know leasing out the rights for somebody to come in there and hunt. 
so that's where this came from and, and where the, the term of hunting club came from was just simply referred to a group of hunters who got together uh, and signed a lease agreement with a timber company on a particular tract of land uh, to retain those hunting rights, and then they'd go out there and camp and hunt and, and do whatever. Um, so that term hunting club, yeah, is not as uh, common or as recognized in other parts of the country as I've come to find being editor of Quality Whitetails and working for QDMA where we are, we have a national audience. You know, I've learned over time that, that not everybody out there in a national, you know, deer hunting audience knows what a hunting club is, but in the South, that's a, that's a common term. And it's just a group of guys who, you know, retain the lease on a piece of property and hunt together. It might be, um, you know, you and your family. It might be you and some neighbors, you and longtime hunting buddies, you and people from church. Uh, and even many times you'll find that folks get together by simply advertising online in hunting forums or wherever that they, hey, I've got, I've got a lease on 2,000 acres in so-and-so county, and I need folks. Uh, looking for members, here's the details, here's what it costs, you know, and then you get in touch with each other and find out whether, uh, you know, these folks want to join up. They may, they may want to come and see the land first before they agree. You may want to meet them and see who they are before you let them into the club. But it does, it happens that way often too, that it's groups of people who didn't know each other before they, you know, advertised to join this club. Right. I, I actually talked with a guy in Texas who found his hunting lease uh, on a, I guess a wanted ad, wanted uh, hunters for a lease. So that's uh, that's uh, pretty unique. Um, now in Iowa, I think over ninety percent of the land is owned by private. It's privately owned property with very little, you know, compared to the landmass, very little public ground to actually hunt on. There, there is hunting ground. But, you know, it's not like the Western states. What about states like Georgia? And, you know, speak on Georgia, but maybe throw out the South. Is there a lot of public ground for hunters to go on? Or, because I think I, I would assume a state, you know, like Georgia, that is an older state, uh, as far as the nation is concerned, would have way more private property set for it than it would actually public ground. Um, yes, we've got... You know, that, that's true here as well, that the majority of the land is privately owned, but we have a lot of public land here in Georgia as well, just like many other states. You know, we call them WMAs, wildlife management areas, and um, uh, they, some of them are state-owned. The state literally owns them. Some of them are also leased, just like I was talking about, you know, private hunting clubs leasing a place. Some of the state WMAs are leased by the Georgia Department of Natural Resources from, say, a timber company uh, and held for public access. Uh, okay. So they're privately owned by some private entity or timber company, but the state leases them. And that, um, when you go back, like I said, when my dad uh, was, was getting into deer hunting in the 60s and 70s, um, he did hunt some public land there near the farm at times. Um, and in, in many cases, when you go back and look at some of the earliest WMAs in Georgia, that's what they were. The state went to a large timber company. Um, uh, Rainier was one of the larger timber companies at that time here in Georgia. Uh, and there were others, Union Camp and, and several other commonly known ones. But they went to some of these timber companies and leased large tracts of land 
um, for public access, and these were known as WMAs. I actually just know, uh, saw some news this week. One of the WMAs my dad used to hunt um, when I was young was called uh, it's called Sansevilla WMA. It's on the Altamaha River here in southeast Georgia. And at the time, it was leased from timber companies. Well, I just saw in the news this week that the state of Georgia completed acquisition of Sansevilla. It is now a state-owned property, so it will be protected and managed strictly for hunting and wildlife habitat, which is good news. Uh, but those, uh, many of those still exist, some of the leases, but, but they're also state-owned. We've got state WMAs. We've got federal wildlife refuges. Um, so, you know, we've got national forests, particularly in North Georgia. There's a lot of uh, U.S. Forest Service national forest lands. So, yeah, we've got uh, all of the same sort of mix of different types of public lands, Corps of Engineers lands, like you see in other states. And most states in the southeast are the same way. Most of them have the exact same network of public hunting lands, you know, uh, managed by the state uh, natural resources agency for hunting. Gotcha. Now, Throughout Georgia, I mean, I've been to Atlanta. Uh, I actually lived in a hotel in, in uh, I guess, a suburb of Atlanta for almost like six months. And then I moved down to Douglas, mm. Georgia for three months and lived out of a hotel room there for uh, for the job that I was doing. I've been to the Lake Lanier area um, yep. uh, kind of throughout that central portion of that, that corridor of, of where the highways are anyway. Now... What's the terrain like throughout Georgia? You've got everything from, like I said, a lower coastal plain where it's flat woods. We literally call it the flat woods uh, because it is flat. It is, um, you know, it's pine hardwoods. Uh, and then you get up into middle Georgia in what we call the Piedmont, which, which is the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, so it's more rolling uh, topography. Uh, and then in north Georgia, it literally is the, the southern Appalachian Mountains. Uh, very rugged topography, and you've got trout streams, um, and so yeah, we've got the full gamut from Appalachian Mountains to lower coastal plain flatwoods and everything in between. So uh, it, it varies, but it is compared to what you're talking about and what you're looking at in the Midwest, uh, whether you're talking about you know Iowa or Ohio uh, or you know up in Minnesota or, or whatever, comparatively. It is largely wooded. Um, if you and anybody could jump on Google Earth right now and go look at, you know, the entire state of Iowa, um, and what are they going to see? They're going to see a lot of farmland, right? Right. And a lot of sort of uh, interspersed little creek drainages and fingers of hardwoods and forest laced throughout this agricultural landscape. But the woods will be the, the smaller percentage of what you're looking at. Is that right? Right. Okay, in Georgia, it's going to be the reverse of that. And in, in most other southern states, um, it's going to be the reverse of that, except when you get out into Texas and you get into more of a southwestern flavor. But here in the southeast, um, it's the reverse of that in that forests dominate. Forested cover of, certain, of, of any age dominates the landscape. Uh, farmed openings are in the minority, um, though you certainly have some areas in uh, southwest Georgia, for example, that are you know, fairly heavy agriculture, but still for us, you know, the forested cover is going to is going to dominate. Um, and then, of course, the exception would be urban areas and towns and things like that where you've got, you know, development. But outside of towns and urban areas, and uh, it's largely forested cover. Um, we just got a, a longer growing season. 
Um, we've got more rainfall over, you know, historically, and this is just an area that that grows forested cover, um, unlike the plains of the Midwest where you know, you've just got so much more farmland. Right. So what kind of vegetation are we, are we looking at? I know that probably varies from, you know, region to region throughout the state, but I can remember when I was down there, just pine trees as far as the eye can see. Yep. We've got pine trees in, in every county of the state. Um, you know, we've got uh, in the southern part of the state, we traditionally had a species called longleaf pine, which is it's sort of faded out. We're trying to restore it now. Uh, it's faded because it was not a, a quick-growing uh, species like loblolly pine or some of the others. And so the timber industry favored loblolly because it grows faster and produced, you know, pulpwood and salt timber quicker than longleaf. But longleaf is associated with a, uh, a habitat type that is uh, sort of the, the traditional southern southeast, deep south habitat of longleaf pine and palmettos and quail and whitetails and turkeys um, and sandhill habitat. So we're trying to restore that tree. But we've got pines throughout the entire state. Uh, we've got a, a wide range of oaks, white oaks, red oaks, you know, both families represented. Um, and in most areas, you see a mix of pines and hardwood species of various types. Um, you, you get up into some of the higher elevations in the Appalachians, you'll see some of the, you know, uh, the conifer species that are more common up north in colder climates. But mostly, uh, it's just a mix of southern pines and, and hardwoods throughout most of the state. Gotcha. So, you know, I, I'm just comparing, you know, Georgia to where I I hunt um, with it being the opposite you know obviously in Iowa I can sit on a fence row and I can glass forever because it's mostly wooded these you know these observation areas are probably not as high as what I'm accustomed to so I want to uh, talk a little bit about how and I know that's a very vague question but how do you guys down there hunt it's um i think to try to understand how it's probably different to how you and other midwestern hunters hunt let's go back to that map analogy where you're looking at a map right off the bat i would suspect you know and i've flown over the midwest in airplanes been on some properties but looking down on it at it from an airplane i just get so jealous because you give me any property, average property in the Midwest, looking at it as a deer hunter, I would immediately have a pretty good idea of what deer movement on that property might be like and where I would start if I wanted to find the most likely place to see deer and find deer activity, um, right? I mean, wouldn't you say that, that given the, you know, the predominance of openings in agriculture, uh, that, you know, you're pretty much right off going to see the wooded cover and what deer are most likely going to be moving where they're going to be moving and staying and bedding on that property. Well, in the South, I don't have that advantage. If you look at an aerial of, of any particular property here, okay, start with, it's mostly green. It's wooded from one end to the other unless there are uh, food plots uh, or farm fields within there. And, and even and if they are, they're going to be sort of the islands in this sea of forested cover. Um, so right off the bat, the openings are... are are in the minority and figuring out immediately where are the deer going to be is a much tougher question 
than it is in other parts of the country. You know, we don't have bottlenecks and funnels. Very, very rarely do you look at a property in an aerial in the south and go, oh, there's a bottleneck. There's a funnel. There's a pinch point where deer movement is going to be focused. Um, you know, unless you create that by, you know, doing some clear cuts or having fields that you specifically designed. Um, and sometimes in North Georgia, we get pasture situations, rolling pasture and fields that combine and, and leave some wooded draws and, and, and bottlenecks that, that actually would be a true bottleneck. But it really is very rare that you find that because, you know, here, if any ground is left unmaintained, if you've got a pasture and you're maintaining it as pasture, that's one thing. If you've got a field and you're keeping it farmed, that's one thing. But anytime you quit maintaining that as an opening, it immediately starts filling in with tree seedlings and briars and brambles and shrubs and saplings. And very soon, within a year to two years, you've got neck deep cover out there that a deer can vanish in and it's just solid. Um, and so, and that eventually becomes, you know, forested cover of, of some age as it advances unless you set it back. And so, again, determining deer movements within these becomes tough. It, it really comes down to uh, scouting is a much more important thing here uh, because, again, that map isn't going to show you immediately, ah, here's where the deer are going to be. You've got to get out there and burn some boot leather and get in the woods and immediately when I'm scouting a new area or any area generally it's food that I'm looking for I'm identifying things like where are the white oaks uh, where are any persimmon trees where are any crab apple trees uh, where are food sources that I can you know depend on okay that's a crab apple tree you know that I might find blooming in turkey season when I'm hunting and I know to come back and check that in the early season to see if it's got crab apples on it then I've got, in the early season, a good place to check for deer sign. Uh, same thing with white oaks, uh, persimmons, and, and any other. And, of course, food plots. You know, creating your own food plot and planting a food plot and setting up your own food source is, you know, critical. So it, it often focuses around food sources, and those change throughout the season. In the early bow season, it's going to be crab apples and persimmons. Uh, and then as the acorns begin falling, you know, it changes uh, again. Uh, and as food plots come in, so it's it's following those food sources so that you kind of know where the, what are the concentrations of deer activity during the rut. That's also going to mean where the does are going to be, and so it's it's usually going to be where the bucks are. But um, so it centers around that, um, you know, where where's the food? Because in the in all this, like I said, in all this broad forested cover, you know, it's very difficult to identify. Um, specific deer movement patterns, particularly if you're trying to pattern a given buck, an individual buck, it's very difficult to say, hey, I, I know he's moving right in here uh, in this narrow area, and, and I can, if I put myself here at a certain time or place, he's going to be there. Um, it's difficult, and this is a this is something that's been a goal of mine for a long time, and that is to do what you, you see Midwestern hunters doing a lot, is identifying a specific buck, following him, knowing him, naming him, and then killing him with a bow. I would love to do that. That is a very tough prospect in the South to get within bow range of a specific mature buck that you have been watching, following, and patterning. And again, it's, I think it's because this abundance of forested cover means that his movements are not restricted to the same pathways uh, day in and day out. 
he can ramble, he can roam, he can you know not use the same trail every time, not use the same bedding area every time because he's not limited. No deer is limited in that way, so it becomes very difficult. Now this is where, you know, again, food sources uh, and using your trail cameras to start with to kind of figure out uh, what is this buck's home range. Once you know his home range, if you've got, uh, you know, three, four, five cameras out and two cameras up on the north end of this place you hunt are getting a particular buck on camera and he's not showing up on the other cameras, that's good information there. At least you know that his home range only overlaps the northern end of your property, for example. So you can get dialed in that way. And then beyond that, it's it's where are you seeing the most concentration of deer sign and getting in there. But calling, too, is a big part of this because even though I can't put myself in the heart of a good you know, bottleneck or funnel, in, in many times, like a Midwestern hunter can, I can bring a deer to me at the right time of year with rattling and grunting, particularly rattling. Um, so th- that's kind of it. Trail cameras, keying on food sources, scouting and staying in tune with uh, the food sources and where the deer activity is, and using calling because you're not going to necessarily be able to know that a particular buck or a mature buck is going to walk under your stand tonight because you got it dialed in that that close, well then you you need to use calling to get him into you. Gotcha, gotcha. Now one thing that as you were talking, one thing that kind of popped up in, into my question box here was um, bedding, right? With with this lack of terrain and lack of bottlenecks, you know, for for uh, you know to concentrate this movement, where are the deer? bedding how close are they bedding uh to the to a food source talk to us a little bit about that that that's interesting it's an interesting thing here i mean certainly deer bed just like they do in any other part of the country um and and with some of the same characteristics that y'all would see which would be you know generally they're looking for a little bit of cover but they're looking for uh escape routes they're looking for a vantage point you know i think generally i see deer particularly in middle Georgia where we've got some contour. They seem to, to bed along ridge tops or hillsides, slopes. Uh, anything that gives them a little bit of elevation looking down over an area so that they can see danger coming and kind of slip out the back door, but they want to you know, kind of have uh, an escape route. Um, I often see deer in the south bedding against, for example, a fallen tree or in a downed treetop, uh, but where they can kind of have a view from there of an opening an open, more open woods, uh, or uh, the slope of a ridge, that sort of thing. But the problem is, again, it's there's so much of that going around. There's so much, you know, pockets of briars and you know, native warm season grasses, and and then you know, looking at timber practices, planted pines, which are young rows of pines put in by uh, a landowner or a timber company. Uh, and they are very dense, and they are very thick, and you can't see through that. Um, and so, you know, deer will bed throughout there. I mean, I feel like we just don't have what you would truly call a bedding area in the south like you do uh, in the Midwest because there's so much of it. A deer, as I said, just doesn't have to bed in the same spot every time. Um, they can pretty much bed down, you know, wherever they they uh, want to at the time, that there's some good cover because there's generally good cover, you know, where close by at any given time. So it's it's less of a 
that's less of something you can pattern. And it makes it difficult, too, to just to move through the woods, just to determine your access route for a stand because you just don't, you know, you just don't ever know where you might pass a bedding deer. Um, So then when you go in and let's say you're on a a property and you've located that, that fresh sign, uh, whether that's a scrape or a rub or maybe a a well-used trail, what do you do from there? If you, if you find the sign and maybe you know where uh, some food is, uh, not necessarily a food plot, but let's say like what you mentioned, a crab apple tree or the white oak, where are you going to look for a tree stand uh, place or a location in that, in that area? Well, then you're getting down to really the same techniques that, that you might be using, Dan, which is, you know, you want to be hunting on the, on the downwind side of where you think the deer are going to be. Um, you, if you can, you know, if you're bow hunting, obviously you want to be within range of that, that tree that's dropping the acorns where you're seeing all the deer droppings in the sun or the crabapple tree. Um, if you can, because many times it is not as, it's not easy to say the deer are going to be coming from A and arriving at B. And if I hunt along this, the route between A and B, I'll have a shot. Um, you know, and, and hunt downwind of that route. It, it doesn't often set up like that because, like I said, in many cases, unless you're on a, the edge of a field or, you know, just sort of the, the, the landscape there gives you an edge that allows you to eliminate some options for where the deer are going to be coming from, uh, in most cases you've got too many options for where the deer are going to be coming from. So you do want to be in range of that tree, bow range, you know, or gun range if you're hunting with a gun, but on the downwind side of it. So you're trying to, you know, figure, uh, and also calculating, how am I going to get in there? You, you know, yeah. you still in the South, you still want to be thinking about, uh, even though it can be tough at times, can you get to that stand without walking through a place where deer are likely going to be bedding or likely going to be moving or likely going to walk over your scent trail after you walk through there? So you still want a, an access route that's kind of low-key, uh, that's, that's um, stealthy and, and not going to disturb deer and get in there and quietly set up and be in range of, you know, many times I'm finding myself uh, setting up within range of the tree itself, the white oak that's got the droppings and the acorns under it, the crab apple tree, the persimmon, the, you know, whatever it might be, because, again, deer are going to be coming to that source from any, any direction in most cases because the cover is in any direction. Right. So... In the in the Midwest where I hunt, right, and, we, and we've talked about this a little, you know, a little bit with the the bedding, the travel corridor, the food source, right, and then maybe there's some sign along the way. With there not being a necessarily defined food source like an egg field, when do the deer move? Are we still looking at a last, you know, the the last couple minutes of night and the last couple, you know, the first couple minutes of light in the morning? Um, or are they kind of on their feet periodically? Is it more random or does that hold true throughout the United States? Yeah, that holds true. Same here as anywhere else. Deer are crepuscular. They move most at dawn and dusk. The first hour to two hours of daylight and the last hour of the day are, are the best. Um, so that's the same same is true here. Um, certainly you can have situations. Um, you know, we've got a food plot on our farm that I'm thinking about right now that 
sets up pretty good in that one side of this food plot is pretty much on the uh, uh, uphill area of the farm, kind of the high ground or high for the flatwoods of Georgia, rather, but uh, uh, more open. And the other side of this food plot is is what we call our swamp. It is a swamp. It's floodplains along a creek um, and just, you know, almost 350 acres of it. Um, and so you can determine that you know the deer are pretty much coming from that swamp. That's pretty much where they're bedding. They're not going to be coming from the hill uh, into this plot. So at least 50% of the direction, you know, you've cut out uh, as a possibility. So you can then um, hunt sort of the, the side of the, of the, the, the food plot they're going to be coming from and catch, you know, generally what we find just like anywhere else, those mature bugs, older bugs, generally don't walk out into that food plot in day, broad daylight. So you want to be looking for a way to try to catch them coming to it. Uh, it's to, you know, catch them in the daylight when you can shoot, but they're not yet in the food plot. You're catching them on the way to it. So you do sometimes get situations like that where you can have a staging area um, or a route where you know a buck is generally coming on his way to a food plot or to another food source um, and, and hunt him that way. So you still have uh, – but, yeah – same same issues, but generally mature bucks, just like where y'all hunt, they're not yeah. dumb. They're not gonna. They're not wandering around in, the, in broad daylight, um, two hours after sunrise. You know, they're going to be pretty much getting back close to cover, and you have to look at ways to catch that deer coming and going uh, along that sunrise sunset boundary. So, with the South being, you know, I'm just. You know, I guess I'm, I continue to compare it to Iowa, you know, Iowa, big open, you know, egg fields. We have a lot of edge. We have a lot of, um, uh, I guess, travel corridors to and from, um, uh, concentrated food sources. Are the, are the mature deer or the bucks, are they traveling a long way from their bedding to their to their food source or do they tend to bed closer because the terrain is, uh, much the same. Yeah, I think um, they can bed fairly close in most cases because they do have pretty good cover. You know, there's, again, other factors come into this. Hunting pressure is one right. of them. Right. Um, and if people are using a particular area, they're not going to be bedding there or bedding close, and that can affect that too. And, we're, you know, there's some seasonality here to it too because we know that in summer, from the scientific research, bucks, that's when their home range is the smallest. And bucks everywhere, just in the south, just like everywhere else, are generally in the summer trying to hold tight to a food source and some cover. They're not, they got no interest in those right now. Um, the, it's, it's eat and hide and eat and hide. And if you can do the two things close together, great. So if you got a soybean field um, or a food plot or, or whatever, the summer food plot, whatever that might be, and some good cover, that's what you're doing. Um, and then as the rut approaches, that buck, those buck bachelor groups break up and each buck begins using the, the the greatest percentage of his home range that he's going to use all year. He's covering a lot of ground. Um, and I think that in many cases, particularly as we get into, like right now, uh, when we're in pretty much pre-rut to rut right now, bucks are beginning to cover more ground. You know, they often, it is not a eat and hide situation. It is now a, you know, roam and hunt and get to know the does in the, in the neighborhood situation and and i think they're often bedding where you know i've seen trail camera pictures of bucks laying down in scrapes in broad daylight and catching up a, a, a snooze for 20 minutes and getting up and going again um so i think that you know this time of year 
um, the the bedding the, the bedding and feeding is less important in the south. It's more about where the doe's going to be, and and that, do, that buck is cruising, you know, evaluating does, roaming, covering his home turf. Um, now it, it gets a little tougher because he's covering so much more ground now. You know, being on a good food source, he's, he might be cruising through a good food source three, four, five hundred acres away from you, um, you know, but still in his home range. Um, and, and so it gets, uh, it, it's a tough game to play. Trail cameras can help you here with, you know, patterning a buck. Uh, Brian Grossman, who's our communications manager, is watching a buck right now, kind of using a food plot in his backyard, but he's still mostly nocturnal is when Brian's seeing him. You know, this buck is covering a lot of ground. His home range only overlaps what Brian can hunt in a small area. And unfortunately, his, he's coming around at night. So there's not much until he, those cameras show Brian that this buck is going to appear in the daytime or close to it. Uh, there's not much Brian can do about that. So using those trail cameras to pattern these bucks and figuring out, you know, their timing is critical. But it's not really, again, you know, very few, I don't know any hunters in the south that point to a map and go, this is where that buck's bedding. Yeah. Um, he could be bedding almost anywhere there are there are tons and tons of bedding opportunities out there and i do think that they you know when you've got a, a buck is a prey animal all deer are prey animals and their behaviors are designed to keep them alive and yep. bedding in the same spot every day is not in a behavior that's going to help you survive very long that's predictable by predators and by hunters and if you've got bedding cover in numerous, numerous spots you could be using, that's what you're going to be, that's what you're going to do. And I think that's what we see deer, all deer, and particularly bucks, doing in the south. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, with, you know, this, these random bedding areas, my, my question is, foods, these food sources, when these food sources, like let's say an oak tree drops, the, the, the deer find this food source, they eat it up, do they tend to move around a lot more uh, in a in an area uh, because let's say like there's just one particular tree that's dropping acorns or there's you know one bush over here that has um, some browse on it are they are they moving a, a excuse me are they moving around more throughout the year uh, because of um, you know a majority of the area is timber. Yeah, they are, um, though the food source itself can determine that. Um, we know there's some good research over the years here in Georgia and some other states that shows that when you have a bumper white oak acorn crop, uh, the deer harvest goes down. And generally, you know, what we attribute that to is is they just don't have to move as far to find those acorns. Um, and we're seeing that right now, uh, We at least here, uh, in Athens, Georgia, where I am, which is, uh, again, in the, in the Piedmont of Georgia, more middle to north Georgia, we've got a bumper acorn crop of white oaks right now. And if you have a lot of white oak trees and they've all got acorns, that's unfortunate because then you don't really have a pattern. Um, I actually saw this over the last two weeks. One of the first white oaks that I noticed, I heard the acorns dropping and I went to check it out, and there were acorns falling under this oak tree and there were deer droppings. And I thought, okay, great, I'm set up. And I moved in with a climber. Um, the first morning I hunted it, I had three does feeding under me in the dark, but they left, unfortunately, by the time the daylight came up. Um, so I never got a deer there because within about a week, all the other white oaks began to drop. 
And immediately there was no more fresh sign under that tree, even though it still had acorns. And the reason was, you know, it was kind of the early dropper, and that was why a pattern emerged. But as soon as all the rest of the trees began to drop, no more patterns. And that's what we're dealing with right now. And uh, here is uh, a tough white oak pattern. And when white oaks are pouring down like that, generally deer don't eat food plots either. They prefer those white oaks over, you know, the cereal grains uh, that you just planted, the oats, wheat, and rye, or the clover, or whatever else it is that you've got going, you know, even uh, soybeans and cowpeas that might be left over out there from a warm season plot, when the white oaks are falling, generally you see deer quit touching those food plots, and it makes it tough, particularly, you know, the ideal situation is to have a one tree with a load, you know, that's loaded, because uh, then you know where all the deer in the, in the area are coming. Same thing with a persimmon. When a when a uh, good persimmon tree tree is dropping in the early bow season, uh, or a crab apple, that's a great you know location to have. Because generally you don't have a whole bunch of those trees, and and that'll present a concentration of pattern that's that can be a real effective pattern to hunt. Um, and so it depends. In years where we don't have good acorn crops, and particularly last year we had a real dry year and it hurt a lot of the food plots. And that really had deer moving more, um, and it, but you had to be able to determine, you know, what is it they're going to. If you had a food plot that, that was in a shady area that was doing okay, you had a good concentration of activity. And again, we come back to the importance of staying on top of the food sources at any given time. I really encourage people to do what we call scouting from the skinning shed. And that is, if you kill a deer, don't leave that gut pile in the woods. Don't, you know, bury it cut into the rumen and see what it was eating. Put on some gloves first. I recommend you put on some rubber, <laughs> rubber gloves first because it's tough to get that smell off your hands if, once you get it on there. But um, cut into that rumen and see what it was eating. You know, we literally have a, screen, a box with a screen that we dump that into and spray it with a hose and filter it out so we can see what were they eating. And you might find something in there that they were keying on that you didn't know You know they were eating. And you, if you can locate that, you might have a pattern, whether you find crab apples or you know, persimmons or acorn chunks or even um, some you know, leaves generally get digested pretty quickly. But sometimes you can identify you know, things like pokeweed that are still around the deer browsing those um, and key on a pattern. So that's something not to forget. When you kill a, you kill a deer or somebody kills a deer, there's some valuable information inside that deer about what it is eating right now. You may not be able to capitalize on that pattern right away this week, and that food source might be changed by the, the week after. But if you will remember that for next season, uh, that can be valuable intel. So with that said, if you kill a doe and – let's say you open her stomach and it's full of acorns, right? Do you think that the entire deer herd at that period of time is on acorns? Pretty much. I mean, if that's um, available out there, unless there's, you know, even when you have a limited supply of acorns, the deer whose home range overlaps that area with that tree in it are going to find that tree. They're going to be using it. Um, and again, you know, that's the situation everybody hopes for is the one white oak that's got acorns this year. And it's just lousy with droppings and trails and everything else. And man, you got a place to be. Um, so there may not be enough of that food source to go around for all the deer that are trying to get it. But, but yeah, if, the, if one deer has got acorns in it or crab apples or whatever, I can guarantee you many deer know about that food source that's out there right now. Gotcha. Now, uh, 
going back to Georgia, what is the the deer population like in Georgia? You know, again, that's another vague question, but let's talk about where you hunt. What's the what's the uh, population like? What's the ratio like? Is it is it fairly good? Yeah, it's pretty good. We actually think here at QDMA headquarters, um, uh, just outside of Athens, Georgia, that we're looking at, you know, maybe 50 to 60 deer per square mile. Um, but we are in a suburban urban uh, interface here that uh, you're getting some of that problem of, you know, remnant deer or, or ample deer habitat uh, in the pockets and corners among the developed areas. Um, but not enough effective hunting going on because it's so suburban that sort of the big hunting club with lots of members doesn't can't really exist here anymore, and it's mostly bow hunting. And so the uh, the pressure on the deer herd just isn't as high as it should be. So you got fairly high deer densities, um, but you get out into the counties around here, and it's it's not that high. You're you're looking at 30 to 40 years per square mile, maybe lower in areas. You get down into coastal Georgia where my family's farm is, and we're looking at, you know, probably 15 to 20 deer per square mile down there. It's a lot sparse, more sparse. Uh, part of that is a habitat factor. Um, the soils down there just can't grow the, the quantity of forage that soils here can. Um, and so it just doesn't carry as many deer. And, and you got, you know, you got in, in South Georgia, you got, you know, very, hunting's very popular. So there's a good bit of pressure on the deer herd. Uh, so it just depends. We, we've got areas of the state where deer population is still too high and needs to be brought down. We've got areas where it's low and needs to come up. Um, and that is from a number of factors. Coyotes play into that in some places, uh, hunting, hunting pressure. And just, like I said, in the suburban areas where um, getting adequate harvest on that herd without guns is, is tough. And so you know, you've got deer that are, are really too high for the habitat that's there for them. Many of them are living in neighborhoods. Yeah. So on your farm, um, and we're going to be wrapping it up here for, uh, pretty quickly, but what is on your farm, what is your goal? When you go into a season, aside from, you know, having fun and sharing time with your family, from a strictly harvest standpoint, what are you looking to accomplish every year? Well, as far as bucks go, um, we protect pretty much all yearlings and two-and-a-half-year-olds we protect. Um, it's pretty much three-and-a-half and up for myself and family members. We've got, um, you know, myself, my brother, my sister, her, my brother-in-law, my dad, um, a number of friends and family that, that hunt the place and a wide-ranging, you know, wide range there of sort of hunting goals from a personal standpoint, me personally, I'm looking for four to five years old or better on a buck. Uh, but my feeling is if we can get him to three and someone enjoys him, that's great. So we're trying to protect all the yearlings and, and many of the two and a half year olds if we can. And we've had good luck with that. You know, we, we see a lot of mature bucks. Um, the, uh, there's a magazine here in Georgia called Georgia Outdoor News that tracks the best bucks by county by official net score. And if you look at the top 10 bucks in the county, about half of them were taken either on our farm or within about a mile of our farm by friends of ours who also practice QDM like we do. So we've had success with that. You know, and that's, nice. that's one of the points I like to make about QDM is it's not about a certain antler score you're trying to produce. It's about producing the best deer you can where you hunt. You know, know where we are in the coastal plain of Georgia, the best deer in Wayne County, Georgia, is 
you know, smaller than, than, you know, many of the other counties in the state. And so, you know, see, you know, we're not going to see a 140 and a 150-inch deer very often at all on our farm. But, you know, a 120 class three and a half up is a great buck in the coastal plain. And, um, you know, we, we, that's what we're shooting for. Though harvest-wise, again, like I said, we're 15 to 20 deer per square mile or maybe a little higher at times. We're not angry at the does, uh, but we do take three to four to five, maybe six sometimes a season for venison. Um, and so, you know, we don't have a real hardcore deer, doe harvest goal, but we do want to take a few. We don't want that population to get out of control. We do a lot of food plots and we do a lot of habitat management. We run a lot of prescribed fire within the timber. We're doing a lot of things to produce early successional forage and cover for deer. So we've got high quality habitat, you know, that stands out from around the, the area in terms of deer quality. If we didn't stay on top of the deer population by taking a few does, we could quickly get out of hand and have too many deer there for the habitat and start having an Im- impact again, and we don't want to get there. We want to maintain high productivity, lots of fawns being put out and good fawn survival, and plenty of bucks in the pipeline. So we don't we don't want to stop shooting does. We want to keep kind of a moderate harvest there and maintain this balance that we've achieved. All right. So personal personally do you have uh maybe a buck you have your eye on this year i had a there were two or three bucks on the farm last year that nobody killed that were clearly four and up um they were probably one of them was maybe in the 130s and the others were in the 120s which like i said that's a good average mature buck on our place uh they were not killed last year um, I was down at the farm. It's four hours from where I live and work, so I don't get down there as much as I like. I was down there September 16th. I did bow hunt some, but I put out my cameras. My dad's got some cameras out, and unfortunately, my dad is checking my cameras for me right now, and and uh, which is a challenge in its own right. But um, <laughs> I I haven't gotten back to the farm to see what I'm getting on my cameras. I put them out. Um, over scrapes, you know, our scrapes, we have an early rut there. It's in late October. It's it's really kicking into high gear right now, and I'm hoping after this weekend I'm going to get down there. Um, my This is my daughter's 16-year-old, 16th birthday this weekend and homecoming and a whole bunch of uh, stuff going on around that, so I'm not going to get to go to the farm this weekend for our opening of gun season, but hopefully shortly thereafter. But at any rate, when I get down there, I want to see what I'm seeing on camera over the scrapes and, and get a good idea of, What's there? I'm, I'm expecting those bucks to still be there, and maybe some others because, like I say, we didn't kill a buck on the farm last year, and don't know of any of these bucks being killed around us. So I'm expecting a good supply of mature bucks again this year. I don't have one in mind that I'm after, and we don't have them named. Um, I just know that we've got at least three to four, maybe five, you know, older bucks on the farm that that we want to take. So nice. Well, it sounds like you got a goal, right? Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, Lindsay, I I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on the podcast and uh, chat with me for a little bit. And uh, let me be the first to say good luck. I'm probably not the first to say it. I mean, the season's already started, but good luck the rest of the season. Yeah, Dan, you too. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, my nine-fingered brother. And uh, (laughs) uh, I I hope you have good luck this season too, and and let's keep in touch. And and best of luck with the podcast and the new network too. Let us know how we can help. 
I just want to take this time to send a huge shout out to Lindsay for coming on the podcast and chatting with us today. Uh, Thank you very much for taking time to do that. Huge shout out to each and every one of you for uh, listening and downloading. Uh, Please go to iTunes, leave a review. I'm getting a lot of them lately. I really appreciate that. Let's see here. Huge shout out to Ripcord, Exodus, Wasp, Gearhead, Ozonics, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Bighorn Outfitters, Ozonics. I think that's it. And uh, please, like I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, podcast, go take advantage of uh, some of those uh, discount codes that are offered through this podcast. Use the nine fingers code. Other than that, guys, I'm going to try to hit a tree tonight. Well, it's Tuesday. So when you're listening to this, I will have already hit a tree tonight. It's pretty windy. I'm going to get down low and uh, hope that this wind has kicked something up. So stay tuned uh, to social media, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter uh, for all the uh, season updates. And remember, here pretty soon you're going to see a change in the RSS feed or the podcast title from the Nine Finger Chronicles to the Sportsman's Nation. and So so that is the only change. The only thing that is going to change is that the title of the podcast will change. You're still going to get all of the podcast. You're going to get Nine Finger Chronicles, DIY Sportsman, Land and Legacy, and uh, starting this week, Thursday, which was going to be tomorrow when you guys are listening to this, uh, the Transition Wild Introduction Podcast is going to uh, is going to hit the the runway. So be sure to give that a listen as well, guys. I'm going to need about three safety harnesses tonight with the way this wind's blowing. But if you're going to be in a tree, please be safe and wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.